<laughs> Are you looking at pictures of Keith Raniere on your computer now, Felix? Yeah. He's jacking off. <laughs> <laughs> I've just I've I've been on like a d- d- deep dive of him. I, I because I mean it's like it's not for no reason, obviously, because like the just for no reason, like conceptual James was like, oh by the way, uh, here's my best friend, uh, the woman from Nexium. Literally, like one one of the like top five people in Nexium, like literally someone from yeah. Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, I was mechanic, uh, and, and so I I hadn't thought about Nexium in like you know like a year or two. It kind of got it got pushed out by Epstein, kind of, which like you know fair enough. But it's sort of like I, it's like most of what I've been reading the past like two days ever since. Like he just taught not even this isn't an unforced error territory. He did it. He like made everyone realize he's friends with like a top five person in Nexium to post a man spreading joke in 2022. When was the last time man spreading was like any had any currency in liberal media? We're like 10 things past that. Yeah, there's no more public transportation anymore. So it's not an issue. Not a problem. I was trying to follow that that thing yesterday where she was like showing she was saying like the FBI like planted child porn on his computer by and and like what it was it was like like changing the 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 metadata on when the photo was taken to make it seem like a girl was younger than she was but I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, like, obviously, like, I wouldn't put anything past the FBI, but then you'd have to deal with the dozens of other human trafficking charges that he was sent up for. So, right. Or like the three exes of his that like just died randomly, like just randomly, you know, <laughs> to kill themselves. Uh, that, <laughs> like Ed, Ed, uh, Edward Brockman's computer is getting hacked, like all this shit. Like, how is just like this fucking shitty MLM running out of an office park in Albany able to like set up all these trust funds? There's a billion other things that you would have to answer for, but I'm in, you know, but best <laughs> uh, of the luck. Thing I, I guess. want him in prison for life for is that uh, Nexium for a while had like a uh, an epic rationalist blog called The Knife of Aristotle. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it was like, it was uh, the whole thing was like, this is the website where we will give you the actual objective, fully rational, no emotions allowed interpretation of all news events. Uh, Matt, did you ever make it into uh, season two of How To with Jonathan Wilson where he yeah, like, uh, yes. yeah, his Nexium connection where he went to a college like acapella summit? He was yeah. in a college acapella group that when then he, they went to this like acapella event that they soon realized was being organized by a cult. And this was like years before nexium was even like known on a mainstream level but yeah it was keith Rainier and company was using college acapella groups to recruit young women yeah he's a, but like uh he also had this this like boot camp for uh for uh, like journalism where he was going to teach people fully objective journalism so that they could write up places like the knife of aristotle and i think that that whole part of it is what is now like hooking up with conceptual james and going on these like epic debate uh you know uh brain uh festivals that they keep having the well, festival of brain where you go and you see a bunch of people's brains and they give you brain well i mean like that it that kind of like gets to the heart of like why i am like just keep going back to nexium why i think it's so interesting it, you know obviously in a morbid way is you know with epstein it's like at the end of the day he was just like a dumb blackmail operator who Let's be honest. Do you really think he could have like done all this without like backing from like Mossad or American intelligence or whoever it was like it clearly, clearly was like doing a job for someone else. Right. At the end of the day, 
Rainier as like just as a person is more interesting to me because it's really just him. He's just yeah. he's just doing this because he's like a like awful predatory person, but it's ultimately only backed by himself. Like how well can he talk in extremely general terms about like human potential and all this shit? And it turns out he can get a lot done. All all he really had going for him was like two er- two dopey fucking heiresses who like three years into his bullshit, three years into his Mensa thing, like to have their dad, this like 80 year old billionaire, Edward Brockman, the Brompton, take a, yeah. yeah, take a personality test. Where he's, he's he's like instantly like oh this is a cult like <laughs> no but, but like this it, is, he's, yeah, he's he's, he's, he's a more Hubbard. interesting guy and he's it, yeah, but, yeah well the dinkiness the dinkiness of Nexium compared to what kind of he was supposed to he or that he was able to achieve is what makes it interesting not that they have like a sophisticated media affair where you don't know where it begins and where it ends which that's more the case with the Epstein stuff because it's not him doing it with Rainier it's like oh they were like crying media stuff but it's really like these blogs that never took off and this like social media shit that like instantly gets recognized you know and like i guess nikki klein is his most competent organ which is you know good luck but the the, sort of the gap between the actual ability and backing and what he was able to do is ultimately what's the most interesting part of the story to me. Uh, when the billionaire father took the personality test and figured out it was a cult, um, I'm just wondering, did he find out which Game of Thrones character he was, though, before? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's also it. Maybe, like, all the fucking bullshit tests that everyone's been taking lately, where it's like, oh, you're 89% like this character from Criminal Minds and 78% <laughs> like this character from NCIS Shreveport. Maybe that's Nexium <laughs> also. Yeah, I got to say that test is bullshit. I took it and I got some asshole from a fucking Netflix show that I've never heard of. Fuck off. <laughs> what was yeah. it? Remember uh, Luke from Emily and Perry? <laughs> Watch that shit. You got to fucking well, you got to you got to purge that list. You got to get that like, five star players, characters, uh, emblematic uh, characters from from pop culture. Not this fucking streaming horseshit. Personality is destiny, Matt. And you were you were Luke now, not not Luke I from Gilmore Luke. Girls. Luke from Emily and Patty. Wonderful. Uh, sure. Whatever uh, see, that means. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm interested in like the the Nexium thing. Oh, by the way, this is hello. It's Chapo. It's me. It's Will. It's Felix and Matt. We're we're back again. It's Thursday, June 9th. Uh, but I was gonna say I, I was interested in the the Nexium thing, like you said, because of the the James concept connection and the weird way in which they've been sort of like adopted by the kind of post right or whatever or i don't know i mean like it's the weird way in which they're now being flacked for by the people that are convinced that like teachers are grooming children into being you know sex slaves or whatever and like the organization that actually grooms people into being sex slaves is somehow being set up by the fbi or has been unjustly prosecuted for trafficking women and branding them um, but then again, like I, I want to talk about it in connection with this uh, this Guardian article that I came across about the uh, the the cult that Amy Coney Barrett is a member of. Um, she was very like uh, secretive about this this group, obviously. But uh, Amy Coney Barrett is uh, was was a member or still is a member of a group called People of Praise, um, and this is a, a Guardian article. 
uh, first paragraph, uh, the founder of People of Praise, a secretive charismatic Christian group that counts the Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett as a member, was described in a sworn affidavit filed in the 1990s as exerting almost total control over one of the group's female members, including making all decisions about her finances and dating relationships. Uh, going on, it says the description of the Rannigans and, and accusations involving their intimate behavior were contained in a 1993 proceeding in which a woman, Cynthia Carnick, said that she did not want her five minor children to have visitations with their father, John Roger Carnick, who was then a member of People of Praise. Other allegations include uh, sexual displays in front of their children and other adults. Um, Tying up children in the in sometimes as young as like infants in their crib, and then the leader of the group having showers with his daughters. Cool, normal stuff. Yeah, it says um, Kevin Rannigan sometimes showered with two of his daughters who were ten or eleven at the time. Wait, that's not the leader of the cult, but the, there was a cult member, and that's what the, why the mother Cynthia was uh, bringing this legal proceeding. But yeah, I mean it's weird. Like uh, obviously, like any this was not mentioned much during the uh, confirmation hearings because obviously any. Well, first of all, isn't she supposed to be Catholic? Like, yeah, what's well, up with these, that, like, charismatic, that like, that's, yeah. that's not a thing. American Catholicism yeah. isn't a thing. It's just a, it's just a particularly pretentious type of Protestantism. Yeah. Whenever people are like, oh, you answer to a master in Rome. It's like, you think any American is getting it together for that? Yeah. I just think it's like uh, this current moment of um, extreme hysteria and real danger for, like, sexual minorities at the hands of these sickos. I mean, I think it's weird, like, how just sort of out of the woodwork they're all coming with the fact that they believe that. More or less that like these sex cults uh, in which like, you know, one charismatic male leader has more or less total authority over women and children. I mean, I think they're, they're flacking for them because I think it's like their ideal social arrangement. I think this is like how they would like all social relationships to be patterned on in an ideal world and are increasingly using the law to uh, achieve that. Yeah. And then that's why it kind of doesn't work to point out hypocrisy and say, oh, you guys are the real groomers. It's like, well, yeah. They just think that they're grooming according to nature and God's will, and you're doing unnatural grooming. It's that simple. Like, yeah, kids are to be, you know, uh, uh, the weaker are to be corralled and to be dominated by the stronger. We're just using God's, you know, uh, revealed preferences to show us who should be in charge, and you're doing some social justice bullshit, making up uh, categories uh, that are in opposition to God's will. Does Nexium or Keith Rainier have any religious component to it? Like, is he big into God or is he just believe? He I is think, God? isn't it? Yeah, it's like pure rationality. It's like Reddit atheism turned into a, a way to get laid because you're not going to yeah. get laid with regular Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, it's a combination of like ultra rationalism, but then also like the human potential movement from the 60s, yes. which is, I, I guess, just like, I guess kind of perfect. Like, it, it's just like a way of making you God. Mm-hmm. Like making mainly Keith Rainier God, but then you, the Nexium, uh, the the Nexium subscriber, that if you like go to enough seminars and do enough shit, and if you're a woman, uh, become a slave, uh, you will also be able to become God eventually. It's, it's like we, we've all got Everything. these little we we've all got these little God pieces in us, and we have to collect the rings like Sonic to become the most God. Everything is an MLM. Everything springs from that basic. Uh, dynamic trying to pitch people on like yeah cooperation cooperation you know uh, uh responsibility uh, to other people anything like that that's bullshit this world is uh people just uh, out for themselves getting what they can but if you follow the the lead of people who know how to get stuff they can give you can get that stuff too and you can 
climb the ladder to to ascension. Well, uh, this is a this is a good segue into the uh, the other story I want to talk about today. I mean, like along the lines of how pointing out hypocrisy really doesn't get you very far, or really kind of like occludes like a kind of rational assessment of what's happening is that like you have to bake in a certain irrationality and i'm talking of course about the uh election results of uh what's it chasa budin uh was roundly defeated his recall he was easily recalled i mean it's an election that like i think like i don't know fifty thousand people voted in but of those who did vote he 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 was washed it was uh it was not close and of course that this is a you know an occasion for reflection or on, you know, the uh, media campaign and uh, to, you know, portray San Francisco as some kind of uh, lawless hellhole, but like, but also uh, like the the limits of of pointing out hypocrisy, because I was like, just just trying to think about all this. And yeah, like you can say that like, yeah, crime was in every respect higher in the 1990s, but it feels worse now. And you can point out like the irrationality of that. But like, again, it only takes you so far. And I think this really does get into this sort of having to take seriously, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to be glib or ironic, but like to take seriously the forces of vibes in like how people perceive reality. Because the thing is like, you know, anecdotally and statistically, like whether it's New York City or San Francisco, like street crime and quality of life crimes were higher in the 90s. But the 90s were an era that was like the last golden age. The 90s are an era when people like yep. believed, in, believed in a future. So when they were mugged on the street, it was easier to just sort of like shrug off and mm-hmm. just be like, well, them's the breaks and like it's not the end of the world. But like now well into the 21st century and especially as well, like in the context of COVID lockdowns and people being indoors more than ever, reality really is what people feel it to be. And there's no really and especially if you're running for office or trying to defend a political program that people are blaming for why they feel so fucked up. You can't just say, well, like you're actually wrong because crime was actually much higher in the 90s and you weren't complaining about it then. Nor can you really uh, like, you know, notice the fact that like now that Bowdoin's out of office, all of these problems like drug addiction and homelessness will continue to get worse in San Francisco. But no one will complain about it or, you know, like uh, be indoors all day on the computer or watching the news thinking about it. So the problem will essentially go away. I mean, the problem will go away when they get what they really want, which is mass deportation of homeless people out of uh, expensive urban areas. That's the long-term goal. It has nothing to do with really crime as per, per se. Uh, it is that the thing that keeps getting worse, like crime is going up and down. And I do think part of this is, is relative sense because, yes, crime is much higher in the 90s, but crime, the, the violent crime boom that began in the late 60s in the United States climaxed in like late, late 80s, early 90s. So while crime was higher than, than it is now, it was also steadily declining throughout the 90s. And we, we had the historic lows there, the aughts. Now it's going up, not steadily and not in a smooth way, but like it's jumping up in places. And that is a, that's a different feeling than being around a higher total crime that feels yeah. like it's going away. Uh, so you have that like really getting in people's mind. But the other thing is that the real thing that they're miserable about, and it isn't crime. They're not the victims of crime. Usually uh, it's that they are having to see the real results of the neoliberal era's impact on uh, urban life. And it, your, the ability of people who, do, who don't make six figures to securely live in a city. 
I'm, I'm like, man, like, I think it's among the groups of people who do make six figures are finding out that that six figures, like they still feel squeezed as hell. And they're getting right. priced out of places like San Francisco and Manhattan or Brooklyn. And so like, so that what they do have, they feel way, way more protective of, or that they feel like they're losing it or losing ground is more like profoundly and deeply felt. And yeah, like if you're, if you're, you know, like work for Chesa or supported the campaign, you can point that like violent crime actually fell during his tenure as DA of San Francisco. But like for the people, like for, whether it's a media created reality or not, like it's a reality that exists in people's heads. And like, I don't know what the fucking answer to that is. Cause like when you have like a, you know, uh, oh, oh, sure. It's a well-funded propaganda campaign to convince everyone across the country that every city is like a lawless hellhole. And like, obviously the cruelty and sadism and all that, and the, the lying is all there, but like, yeah, like the vibes make it so that everyone just feels fucked up and afraid all the time. And it's it's hard it's hard to really gauge like what a kind of I don't know, any po- rational political campaign could do to uh I don't know, counter that. You have to that. do things that local officials can't do, like build fucking housing in large amounts and give people it, which you also you couldn't do even if you could do it because you you're undermining like a fundamental social contract that is crucial in like maintaining literal like the actual capitalist system like you have to have homelessness you have to have the possibility of losing your citizenship in any meaningful sense no longer being a person like other people if you don't have a job that can't go away so that means you cannot do the thing that would actually solve these problems like create a large amount of uh, uh accessible housing because then unemployment for example is not a death sentence and if it's not a death sentence, then what you're willing to work for, that that uh, calculation changes drastically. I mean, we're already on the verge of the Fed triggering a recession on purpose to discipline uh, the labor market as it stands. They're sure as hell not going to get rid of the, the disciplinary mechanism of the existence of homeless people. But the problem is we're now reaching this contradiction in these cities, whereas where, yes, the 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 maintenance of the system in general requires homelessness. And if you have a situation where real estate is the only real uh, source of value anymore in these cities, then that's going to only jack up costs and it's going to only keep kicking people out of their homes. It's only going to increase homelessness. Like, so that's not going to change the system that homelessness supports creates that. But the fact that means there's a bunch of people with a lot of money who actually do vote in every election and actually do influence and determine the course of the, municipal politics who uh, are sick of seeing homeless people all the time that makes them anxious. It makes them uh, uneasy. As you said, it makes the vibe bad and they want something to be done about it. Now, the reason I think a lot of them supported Putin for two and a half years ago is because they're like, Hey, here's a chance to do something that can make this problem uh, go away with me feeling like I'm a bad person because these are liberals. Remember? Yeah, they all support uh, criminal justice reform and ending the war on yeah. drugs, but like they don't follow that to the logical conclusion of what that would actually entail. Well, they just want they like could, a nicer say, solution. All they could do is vote because yeah. all they could do is vote for someone like a DA who who has the discretion to do something like not prosecute certain offenders, but can't build housing, can't provide the sort of federal money that would actually be required to fix the real issues that people are uh, having a problem with. And so this recall of Putin is just showing that they're they were like, well, we tried to be nice. It didn't work. And since things can only get worse, then there's only a- option going to be left on the table is going to be the one offered of we will just make them leave and then yeah. they will be somewhere else. And then they still exist as, a, as a something to be scared of. My God, where are they going? Uh, but they're no longer a thing that like, you know, 
fucks up your vibe as an urban liberal. Yeah, I mean, we're in the past 40 years, I can think of maybe like three instances where capital has done a like, a, you know, cutting off like a little part of its fingernail to satiate the rest of the body. That is uh, giving some concession to people, whether it's easing some expense or some like social spending outlay. Literally, yeah, I would say yeah, three times since 19, three or four times since 1980. Uh, we're so far beyond not just like any left movement or any even like social democratic center left program. We're so far beyond even just like a paternalistic self-governing capital state where it will for the long-term gain give people something yeah uh that all politics is now just operating on pure id and we like saying that that's republicans that's uh that's the trump people that's just maga people that's before that the tea party people but it's everyone it's everyone it is just seeing what is directly in front of you and responding to whatever whatever is put in front of you after that how you can put the two together like of course yeah they don't like seeing homeless people how does that connect to Putin? oh well uh the cops say you know they won't arrest people because Putin won't prosecute them well there's nothing really stopping them from kicking all the homeless people out the cops now even if even if Putin had stayed in he's very limited to stop them from doing that i don't think really anyone could stop them at this point but they're as atavistic and reactive as anyone else. And Matt, I want to get back to what you said about how, you know, it's back what I said like earlier about how like it, the difference between like now and the nineties as it re- regards like sort of uh, managerial, like liberal reformism or whatever, is that nobody, nobody thinks anything is getting better. And everyone yeah. sort of knows and feels that everything is only going to get worse. And so like, you know, your, your bandwidth for like, you know, uh, I don't know, like nicer or better solutions is uh, vanishes with that uh, as well. Because like when you don't believe there's a future, like all you want to do is hold on to what you have at the moment. And like you're not willing to sort of like, yeah, like uh, give up a little bit in the short term for like much better results in the long term, at least theoretically. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's like no and I also think like uh, trust in any of these things like, OK, I, can, I can, you can raise my taxes. You can uh, say you're going to like say, for example, take money from the police department and give it to uh, some sort of magical social service. But I've lived in this country my entire life, and that's never what happens when you give money to an institution or give authority to an institution. So why would that change now? Yeah. Like another thing, like you hear people say is that like, you know, uh, every time I leave my house, like it's a nightmare and I'm afraid, like when I leave my house and I think the leave the house thing is telling because like I sort of, as I like touched on earlier, I think like the more time you spend inside your house, the more you are afraid of what's outside the door of your house. Absolutely. And like, I think that is because like, and you know, like maybe if we had like a different media or different culture, that would be different, but we don't. So like, I mean, any attempt to deal with these problems has to like bake that into it in terms of like how you deal with it. And I, and I really, and I truly don't know what the answer is because, you know, like, uh, like eventually the people who vote will just get fed up with it. And, you know, like it's just a question of like what's coming down is like being homeless now is like being homeless or mentally ill or addicted to drugs. Well, addicted to drugs, that is just illegal, but being homeless and mentally ill is like not a crime in and of itself. But like, What's happened is that, like, yeah, like you are de facto not a citizen anymore, and the crime of not having enough money to afford rent is now, yeah, like now that's that's a felony, like that's a crime. 
your rights can be taken away from you. It's, it's literally going like, to be a felony in Tennessee. They just passed the law, making it a felony to camp outside of a designated area. That's, it sort of makes me think about the profile of mass shooters that the age has, has slid in the last 40 years. It used to be like um, the, the phrase going postal. It was synonymous with like a postal workers going into their workplace and like shooting their fucking boss and five other people that like workplace shootings made up like the lion's share of mass shootings and they still make up like a, a huge percentage. But in the last, last few decades that shifted younger and like school shootings have become more yeah. prevalent that there is, I mean, it, that's something you do broadly if you have no optimism, right? It, yeah. it, a lot of other things go into that, but that's like something you do when you have no optimism. And when you're that doing it that young and you're seeing yeah. that more and more, I mean, it, little bit of a trend but that's everyone no one sees a future everyone yeah. just reacts to it differently um like a 19 an 18 year old or a 19 year old who everything else is working against them mentally uh maybe they were just always a bad seed yeah that is how they'll react uh but you know someone who maybe doesn't have those immediate antisocial impulses would never think of buying a gun but they're all things you do when you do not think there's a future and you just got to shuffle the chips on the, the chips on the table around a little bit before you die. I, I mean, I just think that like, yeah, it's just whatever, whatever strategy of tension is like coursing its way through the veins of this country is really having its desired effect. And I, I mean, I, I think we're seeing that now. It's just like the, the yeah, the, the nihilism and just like uh, distrust of everyone and just hatred for, just everyone around you, the hatred and fear that's just coursing through the veins of this country right now is, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's indescribable. It's, it's, it's really frightening. And like, you know, and I think because like in order to like, I, I you know, uh, uh, our friend Jacob Bacharach made this point where it's just like, in order to advance the onslaught or just the, like the advance of the cultural right, uh, liberals are just going to choose like the smallest groups possible and just throw them to the wolves, starting with the unhoused or trans people. And like, like you could throw them that bone to see if that'll like stop their uh, rapid advance on uh, power and our culture. Um, and like, you know, like the, the, the homeless and the mentally ill are a very, uh, they're a very easy target. I'm just, I was just thinking about how big the river of Ghostbusters 2's bad vibe slime is right now. Yeah. It's like the fucking Mississippi. You know how much negative energy it must have taken to generate a flow this size? Hey, New York. What a town. And like I said, like the, that, that, the Ghostbusters 2 slime that's, uh, you know, the, the, the fucking, the mighty Mississippi of it that's just flowing underneath this country right now. It makes every little thing, every little indignity or every, like, every moment of feeling slightly unsafe or uh, like, like things have gotten out of control. It just it exacerbates that just, just so much, so much more intensely. And like another interesting thing is like this idea that like cities like San Francisco or New York have become lawless hell holes, but also like rent is more expensive than it's ever been. Like mm -hmm. I saw I saw a story the other day about how Manhattan realtors aren't even showing apartments to rent, mind you, for people who make less than one hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year. And this is for a one bedroom apartment. And that's that's the heart of the contradiction. Why the uh, the home owning property owning middle classes of these cities cannot uh, cannot pursue a coherent politics because there's a fundamental contradiction at their interests. Their interests are, their material interests are for uh, real estate prices to keep going up. They're, that is what is good in their interest because that, that's their property. That's, the, the, that's their uh, equity. But that means more homelessness. 
That means more uh, civil disturbance. That means more misery in the streets. And you can't resolve that contradiction without giving up something. And so they're just going to lash out because they cannot confront that fundamental contradiction. Well, uh, speaking of which, uh, just on, on the on the, uh, the 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 Chessa issue, I thought it would be. Uh, I know everyone probably wants to hear this. This is our, our girl Nellie Bowles has uh, Nellie Bowles has uh, come back once again to, uh, you know, because she's you know she's authentically San Franciscan. She's a, she's her family many generations in San Francisco, and uh, she's chimed in in the Atlantic uh, to sum up what's going on uh, with the recall election and just and uh, the headline: How San Francisco became a failed city. And how it could recover by Nellie Bowles, uh, Bowles. Sorry. So uh, you you may remember Nellie because uh, of her. You know the the. I mean, again, like yes, this is personal. I have a vendetta against this person because of her fucking snotty hit piece that she did on us during the primaries. But you know, it's always good to check in on uh, how she's doing. Uh, hey, she I thought it was her- awesome. I ended, I was on the front page of the New York Times wearing a fedora. <laughs> So uh, this is an interesting way she begins uh, her article about San Francisco. She writes, San Francisco was conquered by the United States in 1846, and two years later, the Americans discovered gold. That's about when my ancestors came. My German great-great-great-grandfather worked at a butcher shop on Jackson Street. The gold dried up, but too many young men with outlandish dreams remained. The little city, prone to earthquakes and fires, kept growing. The beats came, then the hippies, the moxie and hubris of the place remained. So uh, just, a, just a quick note here on her great-great-great-grandfather, the guy who opened a, a German immigrant who opened a humble butcher shop on Jackson Street. Uh, the man she's referring to is a guy called Henry Miller, who at one point was the single largest landowner in the United States. Uh, he owned 1.3 million acres of ranch land in California. That's a hell of a big butcher shop. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, like, you know, and thanks to, uh, thanks to the work of Yasha Levine uh, into Nellie and her whole family. I mean, they are... Like true, true oligarchs. Like they, I mean, like her family is like of California. Yeah, like I mean, like they are like like I said, I've compared her family to like they're the San Francisco version of Noah Cross in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I was I I was gonna say, I mean, talk about no fucking future. Doing all the stuff that Noah Cross did to just to have the scion of it be an article monger. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, damn, no future. The future. My great great granddaughter, she'll be she'll be posting about how she just can't even. Yeah, the future, Mister Cross, uh, 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 retweets aren't endorsement jokes in 2022. Big is true. Quote tweets. <laughs> Forget it, Jake. It's a homeless person. I just like one one more thing about the uh, the 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 Miller dynasty here is that eventually, I mean, like obviously, like her family still doesn't own 1.3 million acres of land in California. I mean, like that's been since sold off. But the one thing that they still do own is the hereditary water rights to all of the land that Henry Miller did at one time own. So that means that they're like, they're basically the single largest private owner of water in the state of California. So congratulations to any of our listeners in California. If you've used water anytime as a state resident, you're paying Nellie Bowles and her family. Well, I mean, it's not like it's really scarce here. (laughs) I would also recommend, uh, do not get addicted uh, to the water. Because uh, you, you will resent its absence. But, you know, a hell of a way for Nelly to, to begin this article about, you know, how she's, you know, like her authentic connection to the city that her family owns. She, she says, my grandmother's favorite insult was to call someone dull. 
I learned young that it was impolite to point when a naked man passed by, groceries in hand. If someone wanted to travel by unicycle or be a white person with dreadlocks or raise a child communally among a group of gays or live on a boat or start a ridiculous-sounding company, that was just fine. Between the bead curtains of my aunt's house, I learned that you had to let your strangeness breathe. It was always weird, always a bit dangerous. Once when I was very little, a homeless man grabbed me by the hair, lifting me into the air for a moment before the guy dropped me and my dad yelled. For years, I told anyone who would listen that I'd been kidnapped. Okay, so she has like a, a long-standing pattern of uh, exaggerating. Uh, of being <laughs> a... Exaggerating uh, a, criminal. A, is, yeah. <laughs> a big baby. So listen up, folks. Is the big ba- Hey, folks, the big baby's speaking. So yeah, when she was a kid, she uh, said a homeless person kidnapped her. Um, and now she's saying, you know, uh, now, now just, just keep that in mind for the context of the rest of this article. She's right. Uh, but every compromise San Francisco demanded was worth it. The hills are so steep that I didn't learn to ride a bike until high school. Fucking moron. Jesus Christ. High school? What? <laughs> high school. Yeah. Not that oh, hard. I'm to, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple straightaways in San Francisco. Yeah, it's not all hills. Yeah. Let's go to Golden Gate Park. It's fine. Um, uh, she says, uh, I didn't learn to ride a bike until high school, but every day I saw the bay and the cool fog rolling in over the water. When puberty hit, I asked the bus driver to drop me off where the lesbians were, and he did. Okay, so like, okay, so as a child, um, blatantly exaggerating claims of uh, a street crime that happened to her for clout, and then also saying that like, as a teenager, she just demanded that a city bus driver let her off where the lesbians are, and they complied. I mean, I guess a limo (laughs) is a type of bus, right? That is shocking. That is shocking. Holy, yeah. that's that's never happened. <laughs> when, she not meant, just not to her, to anyone ever. <laughs> she said, when puberty hit, I asked the bus driver to drop me where the lesbians were, and he did. A passenger talk shouted, about, "Talk about, talk about." I'm sorry, but like, talk about fucking horseshoe theory. This this is like a fucking Tumblr hosted like queer uh, like queer tender core webcomic <laughs> the same thing happens in Nellie Bowles' article about why we should like kill heroin users as one of those that's amazing no it gets even better a passenger shouted that he'd hoped I'd find a nice girlfriend and I waved back smiling my mouth full of braces and rubber bands so much just uh wow. okay so like so it was basically she was just like uh a scion of the family that owns all of Northern California here on a city public bus. Hey, could you just let me off where the lesbians are? And the bus driver was like, right away, Nelly. Right away. Please don't tell your parents. Please don't tell your parents I looked at you. And then the, and all the passengers on the bus were like, good luck, Nelly. We hope you get a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So much. The opposite, been- it's the opposite of eating beans in cars, too. <laughs> the whole bus cheered. This girl's eating box. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so much has been written about the beauty and the mythology of this city that maybe it's superfluous to add a little more to the ledger if he ever got to heaven herb kane the town's beloved old chronicler once said he'd look around and say it ain't bad but it ain't san francisco the cliffs the stairs the cold clean air the low-slung beauty of the sunset the cafes tucked along narrow street then golden gate park drawing you down from the middle of the city all the way to the beach it's so goddamn whimsical and inspiring and temperate so full of redwoods and wild parrots and the smell of weed and sourdough 
brightly painted homes and backyard chickens, lines for the oyster bar and gorgeous men and chaps at the leather festival. But it's maddening because the beauty and the mythology, the pre 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 preciousness, the self-regard are part of what has almost killed it. And I, now in early middle age, sometimes wish it weren't so nice at all. So in her roster of things that she finds whimsical and endearing about San Francisco, she includes uh, the smell of weed. So, you know, as she might describe now, open air drug use mm -hmm. and uh, public displays of uh, gay male sexuality, like, you know, like leather daddies and, you know, guys in police hats and, you know, like the Tom of Finland stuff happening on the streets and the Castro <laughs> or whatever, um, which is, I mean, interesting because like, you know, like it, open air drug use and open displays of, you know, adult sexuality or, you know, th things that people might often associate with the a failed city. But, you know, I mean, it's just it's a matter of like, you know, but, you know, now it's like uh, people using heroin on the street is is terrible. But I mean, I granted like the, 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 I would say there's, you know, it's on a spectrum here. It's on a spectrum between, you know, one and the other. But uh, yeah, like uh, the, these are the things that Nellie abides. But the things she doesn't are like, you know, like the, the sense of lawlessness and, and petty crime and car theft. By the way, um, Nellie wrote an article for uh, the Substack she writes for about, you know, like the crime wave in San Francisco about her car got stolen. And her car got stolen because she left the keys in the cup holder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Where, that'll happen. I mean, that will happen anywhere. Come on. You can't. That's, that's pretty basic stuff. I hate this, like, you know, bragging about how dangerous uh, your city is versus my city by people who really, you know, don't bear any of the brunt of it. But if it, it just sounds like, judging by her leaving the keys in the car and being shocked it got stolen, if her plane passed over Chicago... The entire water rights for California would somehow belong to the gangster disciples. Uh, she writes, but I do need you to love San Francisco a little bit, like I do a lot, in order to hear the story of how my city fell apart and how it just might be starting to pull itself back together. Because yesterday, San Francisco voters decided to turn their district attorney, Chesa Bowden, out of office. They did it because he didn't seem to care that he was making the citizens of our city miserable in service of an ideology that made sense everywhere but in reality. Okay, it's not he's just making them miserable. Not like this city. Not like, not, not like everything that I saw there before he was even a fucking candidate. Him. Uh, yeah, she says, uh, it's not just about Bowdoin, though. There is a sense that on everything from housing to schools, San Francisco has lost the plot. The progressive leaders here have been LARPing left-wing values instead of working to create a livable city. And many San Franciscans have had enough. I just, like, I, I would like to know, like, the definition of what a livable city is, though. Because, like, you know, I am sympathetic to the idea of... If there's a huge population of, you know, like the homeless and mentally ill and people like, you know, shoot fixing uh, smack in the in broad daylight. That does lead to a sense that like, you know, it's, it's not a safe place or it's just like I don't, I don't think the answer to it should be like, oh, like that. Th this is good. And like people, they should be essentially like left alone to do their own thing. But like, I don't think the answer is certainly like, you know, criminalizing it or looking at a city like with the housing crisis as bad as San Francisco and being like, oh, like the, the, the homeless people and the drug addicts themselves are what's causing this problem. I, I mean, again, like a place I've been many times, like many times before, really, yeah, only before Putin. And I, I saw the same thing constantly, which is just, you know, people suffering in any multitude of ways out in the streets to varying degrees. And I asked the question, I remember, like, what, how much is too much? Like, uh, what is your exact point for uh, 
your brain your brain registers this too much, which I guess is a fair question to anyone living in America, right? Because we're all we're all pretending we don't see something. But for San Francisco in particular, it's I I really I really think this is the most marginal of marginal outward differences in human suffering you're seeing, if any. And, you know, I mean, I, I agree with Nelly that San Francisco is a, a gorgeous city, but I mean, it happens to be one of the most expensive cities in the country, if not the most expensive. And I think like a lot of the people who, you know, were behind the recall effort um, have, you know, sort of like uh, con to this idea that like uh, there are so many homeless people in San Francisco because they're all coming there because of the city's lenient policies regarding drug use or just its temperate climate. And the truth is that, like, probably, like, the vast majority of the homeless population in California are California residents who at one time were housed in the state and then just slid out of it. Like, I'm sure there's a certain amount of people traveling there because it's easier to be homeless in a generally warmer climate or in a city where, like, there are better, I don't know, like, uh, more lenient uh, drug policies or something like that. But, I mean, San Francisco is is a gorgeous city. But, I mean, like, I I just want to, like, I wish someone would have to like define what makes a city livable or not, because it certainly isn't livable for the huge population of unhoused and mentally ill. It doesn't seem livable would, at all. It would have to, it would have to spend money on things uh, that lower the prices of real estate. It would have to increase uh, significantly uh, affordable housing options, which that lowers, I'm sorry. Uh, you, you, it, it lowers the, the, it reduces scarcity. So it lowers prices. And that they don't, they will not. The people who run the sta- city, like the, the the capital formations, and then the the uh, strand of people who vote in every election, all have a unified interest in preventing that from happening. So they're just going to blame people like Putin for uh, for not fixing something that that they don't actually want to fix. And and that's what these kind of guys exist to do to be whipping boys for this. To excuse their next round when they decide, okay, we're gonna, just going to do uh, Manzanar for homeless people. Uh, you made us do it because you, you know, uh, you didn't, you didn't wave a fucking wand and fix this thing that we are structurally uh, opposed to actually addressing. And you know, Nelly does get into this like NIMBY versus YIMBY dichotomy that's going on in San Francisco, and like blames a lot of the problems on you know NIMBYs, which is you know certainly a thing, especially in San Francisco, of kind of like older, wealthier liberals who don't want anything new constructed because it might fuck up their view of the bay or something like that. But, and it's like, you know, the Yimbies who want to, you know, uh, have better zoning so you can build bigger and big build more housing. But like the problem with the Yimby thing, we've talked about this before is it's not that they like want to like, uh, build more stuff. It's that they're all, it's all just a front for real estate developers. Like they just want to like let the market rip and create tons of like new housing, but the housing that will be totally unaffordable to anyone who needs it. Just a more, more like, sink for fucking uh, for dead money to, to sit, which is what the, like that's why you cannot build just build your way privately out of this problem because because uh, real estate in cities like this will be valuable if if you let the market decide it and that if you, there's so few places to profitably invest money now that real estate is really one of the only ones left. So the more of those uh, units you build you're not going to run out of money that will park there. So that means you're never actually addressing the need for affordability. I, uh, I do wonder though, whether like, uh, cause you know, like we, we know the people funding the recall and obviously like the, the, the media and things like that. I, I do wonder though, like to what extent, like 
portraying cities as failed cities where you can't even walk outside without being robbed or like that that and and an endemic lawlessness because people are like shoplifting out of Walgreens or whatever. I do wonder whether that is part of like a certain real estate real estate speculation pump and dump to like sort of like in the short term lower the property values of a neighborhood, then buy it up and then jack up the prices. The classic uh, police academy uh, city under siege. <laughs> we all remember that one. Now, as mayor, he knew the property along the rail link route was going to be very valuable. So he had his gang set up a crime wave in that area to devalue the property so he could buy it up cheap. You mean this was all just a real estate scam? A billion dollar real estate scam, sir. <laughs> Take him away. Take me away. Oh, how rude. How rude. Woo! And, you know, like, um, I'm not going to, like, the, the rest of the article is, like, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's much of a need to read it. Like, you know, Nelly, she has a lot of stories about, like, you know, uh, people, people, you know, my inclination is to mostly believe her, you know, stories about, like, people suffering and the lack of, like, city government's ability to deal with that suffering. But the answer, like, but she never really, she, she says that, like, you know, Budin's policies are, like, on their own popular, but he is not. Or that people think it sounds good, but in practice they don't work. I would just like some articulation of what she thinks would be a better policy or what would work. If if the goal is to reduce the ambient level of like human misery and suffering that like is now just like an openly accepted part of everyday life in the richest cities on the planet. See so the thing is people like the, the job of people like Nellie Bowles is not to actually propose that. They're to ruefully accept it as an unpleasant necessity when it happens, when someone else does it. When someone else sort of rolls up their sleeves and gets serious, they can just be like, well, this is this is the sad result of the decline of, of, of liberalism and its failure to meet the challenges of a changing world like that. That's that's her job. She, yeah, there's no percentage in her actually proposing anything. Well, because but the like, problem is, you- is that and this speaks to the, the thing Felix is talking about where nobody has hope and that extends to everybody across the political spectrum. So you have a lot of people on the left who see this stuff. And, you know, they know that there's no uh, there's no public housing ferry going to show up and actually do anything about this stuff. They know that in the near term, things are only going to get worse in that respect. And so a lot of them have the understandable instinct to try to fight off, you know, the real implications of this stuff, which is more uh, criminal criminalization, more cops, more brutality by saying it's not that bad. In fact, it's fine, actually. Uh, I think it's cool. And you're a pussy if you don't think this is like authentic urban grit or whatever. And that just that normalizes something that we should not consider normal or good or fine. It is awful. It is bad. It is it is human misery just unchecked in public, which is monstrously antisocial. But I I get why people want to say that, because it's not like the alternative, like acknowledging it's a problem is going to get you anywhere other than, yeah, more uh, more savage responses, because that that the other force, you know, the other. The other uh, political agenda has no constituency or power structure to actually advance it. Yeah. And like, and you know, when you say something isn't a problem that like the vast majority of like, you know, sensible, good faith, well-intentioned people would look at something like the homeless crisis and be like, yeah, it is a problem. Not right. necessarily because they think that like the, the in- home people who are like homeless or mentally or individually like evil or bad. But the problem is like when, when, you, when you identify something as a problem, uh, you have the, the instinct to do the opposite is because like the very real assumption that when something is a problem, then like the only solutions to those problems that our society is capable of rendering 
are, you know, the, the fucking the police. I mean, like, and by the way, the police were more or less on strike for all of Budin's yes. uh, <laughs> for tenure as DA. Like, they, like the, his last act as DA was to hire a U-Haul truck to, like, take evidence out of, like, a theft ring that they had prosecuted because the cops literally wouldn't even show up to do that. He had to deputize, basically, office clerks in the DA's office to, like, to load up That's a U-Haul truck with evidence. That's another thing that you just address in any of this commentary is, oh, yeah, the police in cities in this country are completely independent political force yeah. that are able to dictate their own fucking policy. And the, the idea that you can, uh, uh, like, imagine them as being helpless victims of any progressive regime is crazy. They do what they want to do. So if they're not doing anything, it's because they want to, there is no, uh, there's nothing stopping them other than them. They're part of their political project to get more amenable, uh, district attorney. Yeah. But like, you know, like I said, once you acknowledge something, especially something like homelessness as, as a problem, then like the, you know, the, the instinct is to think that like, oh, like you just want to like criminalize them. But like, I mean, like, yeah. and the thing is like, yeah, like, as we said, like not having enough money to have a, ha- a roof over your head or being like too mentally ill to like function in day to day society is not a crime and it shouldn't be treated like a crime. But at the same time, it's like you, you can't just say like, oh, th- th- this is good. And people should like, you know, it's like it's a good thing that you know, the people are so many people are sleeping rough and untreated for, you know, like severe mental illness or drug addiction, because, yeah, like what you're talking about is is hum- is just, yeah, human suffering, human suffering and misery. And again, any attempt to uh, reconfigure our, our justice system to like as Budin did to kind of like deprioritize lower level crimes, like just I think just runs into the fucking buzzsaw of just people's fucking, you know, like ambient sense of dread and insecurity which the police are there to literally make worse at every opportunity. You know, and like, and like, like I said, just, just mildly ironic uh, that, you know, the great, great, great granddaughter of the guy who literally owned the state of California and the city of San Francisco is, you know, I saw a lot of people saying like, you know, you may not agree with Nellie, but you truly have to understand what a beautiful piece of writing this is and how truly <laughs> deeply authentically she is of San Francisco. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah, you're of a place when you own everything. <laughs> so yeah, like again, like and I'll, I'll really admit, like I, I, I don't want to see homeless people criminalized. I don't want to see them arrested. I don't want to see them their possessions be like thrown out or their you know their possessions destroyed by the police or just like you know just increasingly dehumanized. But like I, I, I would I, I you know like we've we've talked to Josh and other people about what other like you know like a different policy approach to that would be. But like. Other, short of just giving them a roof over their heads, you know, like in sort of like or SRO housing or just a, a major like social investment in building homes. I don't like I don't know what the solution to any of this is. And I don't know if it's compassionate to just ignore it entirely or just be like, that's OK. I certainly don't think that, you know, whatever whatever solution Nelly isn't proposing but is thinking of is is the correct answer for it either. Yeah, that's what's so grotesque is that is that you get if you're her you get to just uh sort of intimate and lay the groundwork for something that that you you can't say and in in, uh endorse in in the company that you keep socially but somebody else who doesn't have those scruples is going to come along and you can just breathe a sigh of relief uh but you know tinged with regret when it happens all right, so that's a uh, that's it on uh, Chessa. Uh, I guess the only other uh, the other election result of note from last night is it looks like Ugo is going to be in a runoff in November against Mitch O'Farrell. Um, yeah. so best I think of luck to him with that. Uh, 
combined anti O'Farrell vote was way over fifty percent. So I think he's done because I got to figure anybody who wanted him was going to vote for him then, and the turnout will be higher in the fall, which means more renters. So I think I think uh, yeah, I think Hugo's going to win. All right. Well, best of luck to him. Uh, I guess like finally, my closing thought today. Uh, the, the, you know, this is a, this is an observation I've had recently. That's it's for the fellas. So you know, if you're if you're a woman, turn off. But if you're a fella, turn up. Uh, guys, have you noticed? <laughs> have you noticed that all women today are bi? But the trick is, you got to figure out whether it's sexual or polar. It's it be like that. <laughs> Am I, I right? I have, I'm, I'm uh, distress signal. Distress signal. <laughs> Workplace being made unsafe. Workplace being made unsafe. I'm being killed. I'm being killed. Distress signal. Calling up. Calling all forces. Calling all Warsaw Pact and NATO. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, I just um boy, they really answered that question though. At least the ladies who work at the Washington Post. <laughs> I stand in solidarity with the labor movement of Felicia Sodas. <laughs> I guess uh, yeah, I mean like this is touching on uh look, our boy Dave Weigel got in a little trouble. Got in a little trouble. He's currently suspended from the Washington Post for uh, retweeting, you know, th- my joke. I mean, that, that joke was stolen from me, by the way. I, I said it in mixed company, and one of you, one of you stole it and tweeted it out, and then Weigel retweeted it, and now he's in deep shit. I I, but, I do want to say the actual person that tweeted it is. I mean, I really do feel bad for Dave. We're we're obviously biased here. We, we love Dave, but we hope you can also see this is absolutely fucking ridiculous. But I do have to laugh. The guy he retweeted it from seems to be like a, a Christian comedy YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. where the best shit comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Will Meneker. Yeah. You, you, are, you already know. You already know my Christian comedy stylings. <laughs> it, just, it just really like tickled me about the whole thing. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're not doing any Dave, Dave any favors weighing in on this right now. Yeah, but... seriously. <laughs> But it's behind the paywall. It's paywalled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's fine here. But uh, this is a safe space. No one will be, no one will be made feel feel unsafe by this. But I gotta say, if you would like a better example of why sort of professional class unions are sort of deeply suspect, I mean, just look just look at this. I mean, like what, like where the fuck where the fuck what well, the Washington Post is a union shop. Where the fuck was his union rep grieving the shit out of this? But no, I mean, well, like I. I, I, I literally saw someone respond to this and they were like, they were like, oh, like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, I deal with unions all the time. Like, they, they acted totally appropriately. Yes, unions are there to like, you know, they, yes, unions are there to like go to bat for you and cover you even when you screw up. But they're not there for when you do something stupid or they shouldn't be used to like, you know, protect you from the consequences of doing something stupid, which I'm like. Yeah, and well, then you like look in the their difference? bio, you look at their bio and the unions are associated with or like. Uh, the Eaterly Union, <laughs> Bevernator, but just the, the Flops uh, Vertical. I don't know. Just the uh, uh, all, all of the language about how like that retweet made people feel unsafe. It led to an unsafe working environment. Look, I mean, look, I'm always going to support a union over not having a union, but it's just sort of like this is sort of what it breaks down in a context where your job is literally the safest thing in the world. Like yeah. usually, like unsafe working conditions in the context of like in a factory is like, th- was your arm pulled into a fucking piece of machinery? Yeah, it's princess in the pea syndrome here. You know, it's like there people in uh, newsrooms they're not immune to the vibe shift and the bad feelings and the general sense of anxiety and unease. And 
they have, you know, but they have to conceptualize it uh, abstractly because so little of it actually impacts their day to day life, which means that they they have to see uh, violence <laughs> in in the corniest fucking retweet imaginable. It's like when when people's conception of what a union is and is for is basically no different than the HR department that works for management. Right. Yeah. Like you, you have to really ask yourself some some fucking serious questions about what's in people's fucking brains. I mean, like, yeah. like even people like like people like professional class people who claim to support unions or like you know want to belong to one. It, it's just like you have to you have to wonder like what the utility of that is if this is what's in their fucking head. I think it's very possible to be done right, but. This is clearly a case of someone just associating union with good person. Exactly. That it's just the club for good people. Yeah. It's like it's part of the language of like left wing politics that has been absorbed over the past generation to like stand in for morality for people who are at the end of the day as as atavistically selfish as anybody on the right. And so they can they will embrace unionism as a way to uh you know, a signal virtue, but then also to just narrowly advance themselves without any conception that like, hey, we're supposed to, you know, be in this together and protect one another from the bosses. Yeah. No, it's just Not like, uh, like the bosses on each other. And you know what? Even if you have a good person versus bad person mentality, I'm sorry, like uh, the people in management are generally bad people and the your coworkers are tend to be better people. So you can you can just rely on that. As a short even if they, even you if you have a problem with you know, a coworker, like, you should deal with it at at a coworker level. You don't immediately snitch. What the hell is this? So I'm just the uh, uh, Vanity Fair wrote this up, and it's uh, the headline: "Clusterfuck inside the Washington Post social media meltdown." And it says here on Tuesday afternoon, Washington Post reporter Josh Dossie tweeted that he was proud to work at the paper, a place filled with many terrific people who are smart and collegial. Four minutes later, reporter Rosalind Helderman. Two tweeted that she was proud to work at the Post, which is always striving to be better than it was yesterday. <laughs> Six minutes later, another reporter, Amy Gardner, tweeted how proud she was to work at the paper, followed by another top journalist in the other top journalists in the publication. The public outpouring of Post Pride, which I'm told political reporters were urging one another to take part in, following executive editor Sally Buzzy's but Sally Busby's memo reiterating workplace policies and promoting collegiality among staff. The memo dropped following a few days at the Post that have been, as one reporter described it, a clusterfuck. Dave Weigel, a national political correspondent, is, as of Monday, suspended without pay for the next month after retweeting a sexist tweet last week, which he then promptly unshared and apologized for after a colleague called him out on both the company Slack and publicly. Didn't Dave Weigel defend the what's her name felicia somnes or uh for when she tweeted something stupid yeah I'm sure he did because dave's a principled person i do like all the uh <laughs> raymond shaw is the kindest bravest warmest nicest person i've known in my <laughs> entire life outpouring here from the post and also it's like you're the washington post like you created the fucking like justification to go to war in iraq yeah fuck you like yeah, fuck i mean you. like Eat that's shit. Thing. at the end of the day this is this is not a place to seek uh the kind of of justice that these people like are imagining like it's it's a it's the empire manufacturing consent uh it's a consent manufacturing company that's where you're on that's the hr department that you're dealing with oh i have a fast breaking update felicia somez has fallen what she she has been fired what are you serious Whoa, well, never this mind. Dude, the storm oh, came. Dude, Dark Weigel <laughs> happened. The storm came. Holy shit. Wow. 
Holy fuck, man. <laughs> he's uh, he's probably, you know, he's probably taking the day to, uh, you know, sort of levitate three feet off the ground. <laughs> Sorry. He's probably taking the day to levitate three feet off the ground, eyes glowing red, listening to like a Rush album or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough, right, man? Like I, on one hand, incredibly predictable outcome. In, 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 incredibly. On the other, I don't really feel good when anyone loses their job. On yeah, the, the, on the third, yeah, on the third hand of Vishnu, when you're like trying to get <laughs> someone else fired for like no reason, I don't know. It's all pretty funny though, but like I don't know. It's just media unions are like you know, it, it's it's pretty funny. I, I I don't know. It's just uh, it, it doesn't seem like things are really adding up. But uh, hey, so you know, hey, look, we're biased here. We're, we we like Dave. I think he's a good reporter, and he comes on the show. So uh, best yeah, of luck to thing. him, and and, uh, and and Felicia as well. Bye, God, I mean, this is what he got for that Christian YouTubers joke. What do you think is going to happen next time he goes on the fucking show? What well, is nothing now? People have seen. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's the god emperor of the Washington Post at this point. He can wish people into the cornfield. He's he's untouchable now. He's going to come back and just do like a full Bill Burr forty minute set just in the in the newsroom. Yeah, he is about to be the official uh, Washington desk for Legion of Skanks. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that does it for today's show, gentlemen. Um, mm-hmm. Until next time. Bye-bye. Uh, we, we, Bye-bye. We do. Goodbye. Goodbye.